Hello and welcome to the Mountain Conversations podcast, the show that celebrates the beautiful planet we call home. Each episode, alongside an expert who is passionate about their subject, we will take you on a journey to get you excited about the topic. This is a show about hope and positivity, and it's my hope that by learning something new each episode about the work of amazing people who dedicate their lives to making a difference, you will be inspired to take action and get involved in the efforts to preserve our beautiful home, planet Earth. I'm Charlie, and this is Mountain Conversations. welcome back to the mountain conversations podcast thank you so much for joining me for another episode and thank you for sticking with me through uh, a couple of breaks that i've had over the summer obviously i've got two kids it's been wonderful to spend uh, a few months just exploring our new home in north norfolk um exploring the the nature reserves and just getting to know the biodiversity and the incredible sights and sounds and smells that this area has to offer is absolutely gorgeous. Highly recommend a visit to anybody who has never been before. Um, I am so excited for the next few months. We've got conversations with authors. I've got more Marine Conservation Society content to bring you, collaborations. I've got so much exciting stuff going on. I just can't even contain my excitement and I can't wait to bring that to you. But for this episode, I was lucky enough to speak with someone that I have been connected to on Twitter for a very long time now. Um, Still haven't met in person, which I'm so sad about, but I hope that we will uh, very soon because that would be amazing. I know a lot of my contacts are connected with this person as well, so I'm hoping that they will be super excited to hear a little bit more from this person. So without further ado, here is the episode where I had the chance to talk to PhD researcher and award-winning science communicator Dagmar Devoideven. Hello Dagmar, hi. <laughs> hi Charlie, hi, it's so nice to be here. It is, I'm so glad we're getting to do this. We've been connected on Twitter for so long. I'm, I'm, yes. It's, it's nice to actually get a chance to chat to you about what you what you do. And I, these yes. are my favourite episodes where I know absolutely nothing about the subject and can just learn real time alongside the audience. So without further ado, do you want to introduce what we're going to talk about? Yes. So, um, yeah, uh, like you said, I'm a behavioral ecologist and my current uh, research focus is that I'm a PhD student studying social learning in archer fish, uh, which are just the coolest fish that have ever existed um, and possibly great for studying social learning. We're not sure yet, but possibly. Well, I think there's going to be a lot of things to deep dive into as as it were. You know, I bet people are just thinking what i mean so am i so should we start simple and say what on earth is an archer fish yeah uh absolutely so archer fish are these uh great tropical fish uh live anywhere from like sri lanka and india all the way across southeast asia up to china even down in australia um they are mostly freshwater uh but some of them do live in brackish water they really like mangrove habitats And the one reason you might have heard of them is that they hunt by spitting water at insects, which are outside of the water. Um, And they are one of two uh, known creatures to to hunt using a liquid projectile like that. It's not spit. It literally is just the water that's in their mouth. Um, Wow. Well, that's that's certainly unusual. What's the other creature that does that? 
So other than archerfish, archerfish are a whole genus of fish. They will do this. Um, is that uh, my lab showed that there's a unrelated fish called a dwarf gourami, which can also hunt by spitting water. Uh, but I'm not sure if they've ever been seen doing it in the wild. Okay, interesting, interesting. Yes. So if you if you were to describe an archerfish to someone who doesn't know what an archerfish looks like, are they are they massive? Are we talking like huge? Are we talking tiny? Um. So. Well, they do start out small, of course, like all infants. Um, but the ones I have in my lab are, you know, six inches long, maybe. But one of the species in the wild can get up to 14 inches long. Okay. Um, they're kind of, yeah, pointy, silvery fish with black markings on them. And they have a really long, uh, like, jawbones on the bottom. So their mouth goes, it's quite long and um, it's sort of turned up. So they look like they're always frowning. Okay. They're really cute. I know that feeling. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, so with your with your research, you said you're doing social learning. I mean, I know fish have yes. got a bad rep for like, you know, not oh. being, I know like, you know, people think they're not intelligent. They think, you know, the social learning isn't a thing, but we're here today to teach people that that is not true. Yes. So what is it yes. that you're actually looking for? What are you, what are you doing? So social learning, first of all, very briefly, is just learning you do by um, taking cues from other individuals, uh, you know, and those cues can be anything from a scented animal leaves on a certain uh, food source uh, to actively copying every single movement an other animal is doing. Um, and the most complex form of social learning is called imitation. And specifically, that means um copying a completely new action so something an animal doesn't do on their own they watch another animal do it and then they also start doing it completely new behavior um and a lot of people think that only humans can learn by imitation because they think oh you need a big brain you need a neocortex you need these specialized neurons and some people think that other apes might be able to do it as well the evidence there is not great um primatologists love to big up their evidence and if you look at the research then it's like well you're saying it's this could also be that but archerfish potentially can also imitate uh there's a research by a lab in germany by stefan schuster's lab in 2006 where they tried to teach a bunch of archerfish to shoot down moving targets and they don't do that in the wild because it's much easier to hit something that sits still and they meant to train several fish to roll in one tank, but one of the fish was a bully um, and wouldn't let the other fish practice. So just one fish was training with this moving target and eventually started hitting it consistently. And instead of removing that fish and then letting the other fish practice, what the scientists decided to do is just test the other fish which had been in that tank to see if they could hit the moving targets. And they were hitting it with the same rate of consistency as the trained fish. And now it could be that they learned how to hit the moving targets by watching that fish practice. Or they could have just been watching the moving targets and figured it out without needing to practice. Mm -hmm. So we don't know because that wasn't the point of the experiment. So we don't have, you know, all of the controls and things we'd need to be able to say this is definitely they learned a new behavior by watching a different fish and that's imitation. Um, but I... The point of my PhD has been to try to recreate that experiment uh, and see whether or not they are actually learning by watching another fish. So 
I f- but there's so much to uncover there's so much to unravel there so I find it really interesting first of all what you say about sort of primatology and ape yeah. social learning and stuff so the only kind of things that I can think of immediately that I can kind of relate to in any kind of way is um when I was writing my dissertation for my undergraduate degree I was I wrote about them different different sort of groups of chimpanzees that uh, some of them you know use tools to crack open nuts some of them in different in different parts of 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 where they live um don't do that and don't display that behavior so there was the argument for you know this particular group is learning through you know watching the mums watching the you know their and this group doesn't learn it because because they don't watch it they don't there's no no one to see so um, I find it really fascinating that it's you know the research is taking place in something like fish I just think that just baffles me it's just not it's nothing that I've ever thought about and so I'd love to know sort of how do you how do you go about doing that with a fish (laughs) that's a really good question um and the reason we're using fish other than the fact that you know archer fish might be able to do this is fish are a lot easier to keep in a lab than primates Mm -hmm. uh you know you can have more fish they're easier to look after they're cheaper um and i'm not saying you know we're not skimping on the animal welfare here uh but they're just they're a lot more accessible than apes are um and usually can be bred. Archerfish can't, but that's a whole different issue. Um, so to train a fish to do something, like archerfish specifically, uh, it's a lot of patience. So we usually show them, you know, the target we want them to start shooting at. Uh, this can be a different color, different shape. And we hold it above their tank. And then we wait until they spit at it. And then when they spit at it, we give them uh, a food reward of some kind. And basically it's just this positive reinforcement. Um, you know, same like you do with a dog training a dog to sit. Archerfish don't respond well to negative reinforcements. If you show them a target that isn't rewarded, they learn to avoid it because they know, oh, I'm not, I'm not getting anything from this. Um, but they they really like those positive reinforcements of this is the thing I'm aiming at. So I'm just going to keep shooting at it. They're always hungry, which is really useful. Um, yeah, it's just a lot of showing them things and then waiting for them to to catch on. Um, Go and tell. Fish. Yep. So yep. why did you decide to do it with, and I'm sure there was more to it than just deciding one day I'm going to do it with archerfish, but how did you decide to do it with archerfish specifically? I mean, I know that they, they show this this spitting behavior but could could you not have applied the same to I don't know a salmon or a trout or yeah me absolutely trying make, I'm trying to think of fish <laughs> God. just once you've eaten before yeah <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah um, um so how did you why why the archer fish and why not a salmon? the nice thing about archer fish and the fact that their main behavior is this spitting is that because they're spitting at something which can be They can spit as far as six feet. So you can put the target really far away from them. Mm -hmm. Um, But most importantly, there is no physical interaction between the fish and the target. So there's no olfactory cues for the other fish to rely on. There's no sound cues. There's no cues other than the visual input of that fish is shooting at that target. Mm -hmm. Um, So it removes a lot of the need for other controls that you would need. Um, if you were to be using different fish okay because the interaction of you know a demonstrator animal with an object that you want other 
animals to then learn to use, that leaves all sorts of um, traces on that object. Um, and if you want to know for certain, well, they are definitely watching what is happening, mm-hmm. you'd have to remove all those other traces, which would be really tricky to do. Um, and with Archerfish, we don't have that problem. Well, I just find it, the whole thing fascinating because I, I know it's, I've, I always find this fascinating, the, the sort of the difference between instinctual things and then things that are learnt I mean I was um obviously I live by the coast in Norfolk now and I was walking down I think it was in Blakeney where um, the seal colonies are um and there was a sign on the side of this I suppose it was a ditch um and there was a a sign about this particular species of eel where Mm -hmm. the males come all the way from I think it was Bermuda they come all the way to this like essentially ditch in Blakeney in Norfolk they're just the males all the way here to do what they do. And must be something, I think it was something to do with the nutrition in the area or something. They come on their holidays to Norfolk and then they go all the way back to Maine. Yep. And that just blew my mind. I mean, yep. how, how do they know? How do, you know, what? So many yeah. questions. <laughs> so a lot of, I mean, I don't study migration, but a lot of migration is instinctual, but there are also aspects of social learning within it. Uh, you know, not just in fish and in, in birds and in other migrating species as well. You yeah. follow the other individuals who know where they're going mm-hmm. and then you end up in the right place. Um, but at the same time, there's that instinct of, uh, I can't remember, I think it's in the United States. There's a, a flock of birds who migrates every year and they suddenly make a strange turn like east and then they go east for a bit and then they go further north. And the reason is that there used to be a mountain in the way. Mm-hmm. So they were going around a mountain that no longer exists because that's the path yeah. that has been ingrained in that population for so many generations. Yeah, I just think it's so it's, interesting. Yeah, it is, isn't it? It's just absolutely mind blowing. Um, but back to your fish. Obviously, yes. this is a a show about nature, conservation, all that kind of stuff. So I love learning about your your actual research, but I'd love to know a bit more about archerfish in the wild, if we may. So, Ooh. you know, sort of you said you've said where they live. Are <laughs> they are they all right? Are they doing okay? Do they have any kind of threats? Or... Good question. <laughs> it's nobody's sure. Um so the IUCN red list does have some of the archerfish species listed uh but out of the seven recognized species i think only two of them actually have a status uh and they are least concerned but at the same time all of the research in archerfish that happens happens in labs mm-hmm. um so there isn't a whole lot we know about them in the wild uh we don't know what the main stressors are because we're not studying them and uh I said earlier, archerfish can't be bred. Um, we, we're not sure why. You can you can breed them, but then at some point the the fish fry just dies, and we're okay. not sure what happens. You know, it can in be captive, temp- in captive conditions. In captive conditions, yeah. Either you know salinity's off or the temperatures off. Who knows? It's possible because archerfish can live in brackish water. Maybe they go out to sea, and we just have never noticed because we're not studying that bit of the fish. Yeah, you know, of their ecology. Uh, and at the same time, I mean, I I love talking about archerfish. I love making people more aware of them. But I'm also aware, you know, of like, you know, the Finding Nemo issue, if they become too popular mm-hmm. and they're really cool, will people try to keep them as pets? Yeah. Possibly. But then if they're all wild caught, 
we could drain the wild populations without fully understanding how they work and how they, um, you know, influence the environment around them. Yeah. And as if you can't easily breed them in captivity, then the only option would be if popularity catch them. Yep. to capture them. Yeah. And then obviously, yep. that, as we know, that comes with a whole a whole load of other problems. Um, yeah. No, no. So I think that's that, that's that's fascinating. That it's interesting to know that the only things we know about them are from what we've studied. And yeah, that seems there's, like a, is that a there's a, I think for fish, relatively. I mean, most of the fish used in labs are you know zebrafish and sticklebacks, um, and those are zebrafish lab populations. I think are just specifically lab populations, and they can be bred and sticklebacks. Same thing. You know, they're a bit easier to breed. They're literally everywhere. Um, people like to use cichlids and stuff, but cichlids are, again, easier to study in the wild. With archerfish, because there are multiple species and because they live in these relatively isolated areas uh, and the social learning experiments require so many you know, controls for the experiments, it's very hard to do in the wild. So there's a handful of studies people have gone out and actually looked at them. But most of it is happening in labs and it's happening in labs in, you know, the UK and Europe and the United States. Um, so we're also not, there could be so much local knowledge about these fish that we just don't know because we're not going out to these fish's native areas and asking the people there, hey, what do you know about them? Because, you know, the local knowledge is so valuable for understanding an animal. And maybe they'll say, oh, yeah. They go out to sea every year when they're this big. And that's why they die in your labs when you mm -hmm. try to breed them. So, uh, no, I, I was meant to go. Um, we thought about me going to, you know, Thailand or Singapore to study archerfish in the wild as part of my PhD. But then because of COVID, that um, mm -hmm. plan went out the window. So yeah. sadly, I've not, I've not had the chance. Um, Is that something you'd like to do? Yes, I'd love to to work with local researchers as well, mm -hmm. um, because it would be so much easier to work with archerfish in larger numbers than what I'm able to have in the lab as well. Because mm -hmm. uh, I think I own like 75% of the archerfish in the UK at the moment, mm -hmm. um, you know, and it's hard to get new ones. So there's only so much I can do to try to understand these fish. And at the same time, we know that animals' behaviors in the lab is different than it is in the wild, even for wild-caught animals. So maybe what I'm discovering doesn't apply when you're in when they're in their natural habitat. Mm -hmm. so, so many questions. So many questions. Watch yeah. this space, hey. <laughs> <laughs> so we've done this kind of backwards, and I did it on purpose, um, or at least I'll say I did. Um, that I normally ask my guests to start with about what it was that sparked their their passion and how you got to be where you are obviously you know I know I know from what I know about you is that you you know you love you love nature you love being outdoors yes. and exploring nature and obviously now you're working with nature in you know yes. yes so and learning more about it but I'd just love to know sort of more about how you got there what was it so I think I always wanted to be a biologist Mm -hmm. um, I remember when I was when I was a kid, I wanted to be an Arctic biologist. 
Okay. I did. Th- I don't think I actually knew what that meant. I just wanted to go to the Arctic Circle and study animals. Um, and my brothers would then make jokes about me beating baby seals to death, which is um, <laughs> something I still haven't forgiven them for. <laughs> also, not something I've ever done no. or anything. They're not in favor of clubbing seals to death. That's just the <laughs> image they had of Arctic biologists, I guess. Um, but yeah, and obviously that changed a bit. I thought, you know, oh, I, I want to, you know, I want to be a movie star. I want to be like a famous person who goes out and does like all these cool things. And eventually I went back to, no, you know, I want to study animals or be a vet or something. Uh, and then I didn't get into vet school, which made that decision really easy. So I went and I studied ecology uh, at university. And I'd had a bit of background with seeing like, biodiversity in a lot of different places because um i'm from the netherlands but uh because of my dad's job we moved around a lot so i've lived in uh the middle east i've lived in central um or eastern africa i've lived in the united states uh, and i've lived in europe so there's you know so many different types of creatures and plants and uh climates that you that i've experienced so i was really curious about you know, how, how do all these creatures fit into the places they live? But then when I was at university, I heard about behavioral ecology and I was like, well, that's absolutely what I want to do. I want to know why are these animals acting the way they are and how is it influenced by all the things around them? Um, so I, I did an undergrad, I did my thesis uh, working with uh, the Fino web team at the University of Edinburgh. A uh, wonderful guy named Ali Fillimore, who runs a project uh, studying blue tits uh, in Scotland. So we'd every summer go out and for, you know, one or two months, we'd drive around uh, about a 250 kilometer transect to 44 different locations um, and measure blue tits uh, like statistics in these nest boxes. So how many chicks are they having? How big are their nests? Uh, what kind of food's available for them? Uh, And it was basically like a climate change study, because when you're covering such a wide range, um, the birds who are further south will start breeding earlier than the birds further north. And it's the same thing with climate change, uh, because if it's hotter, the birds will start breeding earlier than if it's cooler. So it was like a a spatial uh, version of climate change. So every year you could see if the temperature is like this, this is what, what the birds do. Um, instead of having to wait so many years to collect climate change data. It was really cool. Uh, I got to see lots and lots of different parts of Scotland, uh, lots of Scottish wildlife. And then for some reason, I decided to go and study plants for a bit for my master's. Um, I do like plants. Uh, I think they're fascinating. Um, And I know you can't call what plants do behavior, but it's very similar. You know, they do certain things because of, everything around them mm-hmm. uh, and they just don't have brains so we don't call it behavior but really it's kind of the same thing so i looked at seed dispersal of sycamore seeds in a little helicopter yeah. ones um because we all know they come off the tree and then they go on the ground and then very few people have looked at what happens to them after that mm-hmm. despite the fact that those wings stay intact for so long so i was looking you know how long does it take for the wing to degrade uh, how well do they survive if they've been immersed in water? Um, 
you know, what kind of things are eating these seeds and under what conditions do they prefer to eat them. Um, and this, those wings can survive for months, uh, if not longer. And they, they do play a really valuable role even after the seeds come off the tree. So they're not just for dispersal. Uh, they're also for, you know, predator protection and things. Or toddlers when they come along and use them as toilers. And... For toddlers, yes. For me. Um, <laughs> apparently they're also edible, I've heard. I've oh, really? not eaten them myself. Um, I, I should. I think I should try them. Yeah. Um, but yeah, maybe Google that before you try to eat them. Just, <laughs> yes. Yeah. Someone told me this. I don't know how reliable this information is. <laughs> yeah, do not get your foraging information from this podcast, please. Oh, no, absolutely <laughs> not. Absolutely not. Um, but yeah, then I've had a, a fairly linear, you know, career track because I went straight from undergrad to my master's and from my master's straight to my PhD. Mm-hmm. Um, because when I was doing my my master's, I was looking for, you know, I knew I wanted to do a PhD because I really love the research. Um, and I was looking online for PhD advertisements and I saw this one on Archerfish, which I'd never heard about before. And I saw that the person who advertised it was the, uh, the lecturer whose office I sat next to, um, at uh, the lab I was working at. So I just went and knocked on his door and was like, Hey, (laughs) tell me about these fish. Um, so they, they actually, you know, they went and showed me the fish and they were really cool and, I read up a bit on them and the best parts of science, I think, are finding out there's a big gap somewhere that no one's really looked at yet. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's what I did with you know my undergrad thesis and with my master's and then with the archer fish. It was, you know, here's this 2006 paper and no one's actually gone out and retried it to see if these fish are actually using social learning. And I just went, well, someone's got to do that. I want to do this. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And then I got lucky with the funding, which is always the case for PhDs. It's always, it's always, nice. <laughs> always the case. Don't <laughs> don't think, you know, oh, uh, I'm never going to get a PhD or I'm definitely going to get a PhD because it's all about the funding and the funding is, is the hard part, I think. Yeah, so. we, could, we could do another podcast on that, I think. <laughs> I think um. so. <laughs> it, it would just be crying. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you just get different people on to cry at, about all the stress from the past. Um, well, I'd I'd love to sort of dive more into your, uh, you're an award-winning science communicator. I am. Now, I, obviously, science communication to me is something that is incredibly important. I, as you know, and as a lot of people listening know, I sort of stepped away from the academic, from the the researchy kind of thing, because it just wasn't quite, for me, it wasn't quite the right fit. But I love learning about what people are doing and communicating it in a way that is accessible and because I I always think and I always say what is the point in all this amazing research if you're not sharing it or if you're only sharing it with the same circles I found when I was at university that you know we'd go to we'd learn about something we'd go to a conference where it would be the same people who would share that information and it was just a circular process it would just keep going round and round and round the same people the same circles and all this incredible stuff was happening but no one knew about it and no one was shouting Mm -hmm. about it so I'd love to know a bit more about your sort of science communication work how you got into it why you do it and why why is it so important to you yeah so I got into it um kind of because of COVID uh you know lab shut down I didn't really know what's what I was meant to be doing uh, for a while. I didn't have 
like the social aspects of my my work because my department's very social you know all the PhD students hang out together um and suddenly that was all gone Mm -hmm. and I was kind of going oh what the hell am I going to do now so I went on Twitter um and there's a great community there of you know scientists and stuff and lots of really good science communicators and I thought that's fun Mm -hmm. I also want to do something like that. I want to tell people how cool fish are because nobody ever thinks about how cool fish are. So I just, I started out with, uh, on, at 5 p.m. on Fridays, I would post uh, facts about fish. Um, some nice alliteration there. <laughs> um, and then from that, I started, you know, I got in touch with the public engagement team and at the university, see what kind of stuff they were doing. You know, could I help out? So I helped out with the, the BioBlitz a few years. Um, I helped out with some other events. And then I discovered there's competitions you can do. And competitions aren't for everyone, of course, but, you know, things like three-minute thesis, um, other, you would only have limited time to talk about your research and that's really good training for actually getting down to what am I doing and why am I doing it uh and that's the part that I struggle I used to struggle with explaining most you know concisely saying this is important because Mm -hmm. so I did one competition just within the university um and then a few months later I saw that someone else who'd been in that competition was joining this thing called fame lab, which was three minutes to explain any scientific concept to a general audience. I thought, Oh, that sounds fun. I'll sign up too. Um, so I came second in the Sanandus heat, went on to the Scottish finals, which I didn't realize until two weeks before the Scottish finals that I was meant to be presenting again. So I had to come up with another three-minute talk about archerfish. <laughs> Thankfully, there are many things I can talk about with archerfish. So I did. And I was one of the three Scottish winners. So I went on to the UK final. Um, again, different talk about archerfish, but lots and lots of fun. Um, you know, great people competing. Uh, got some, like, psychom training from professionals and stuff. And then in the final, I was the judges' runner-up. And also the audience winner. Um, So that was really exciting because I joined this competition kind of on a whim. Mm -hmm. And by the end of it, I was thinking, oh, I could, I can actually do this. You know, I can actually make something out of this. Um, And the prize money helped as well because it meant I could buy a bunch of nice equipment. And I started making videos to put on YouTube um, about how smart fish are, like their cool adaptations and stuff. Um, And then later at the end of last year, I decided to combine science communication with my newfound love for Dungeons and Dragons. Mm -hmm. So now I host a show where science communicators play Dungeons and Dragons, and we do both of those. Uh, We also raise money for charity. So since November, we've raised more than two and a half thousand pounds, which is really exciting. Yeah. 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 Uh, And the only thing I know about Dungeons and Dragons is from Stranger Things. So, you know, I'm... (laughs) We'll have you on. We'll have you on at some point. Jeff. I mean, yeah, I, I'm, I'm, I'm well up for learning. <laughs> but... I've taught many people to play on on my show because everyone has to be interested in the things I'm interested in. Um, no, and then uh, yeah, I, I did an internship at a museum in the Netherlands. I did a bunch of science communication there in Dutch, which um, it is my native language. 
but I don't do science in Dutch. So it was really tricky, but again, really useful for learning. How do I talk to small children, which I didn't have that much experience with. Because if you're working in a language, you don't fully understand, you know, at least not the scientific language, then you try to find the easiest words to explain something, mm-hmm. which is really good for talking to kids, because obviously they don't know what a lot of the scientific words might mean, because we can't expect them to be at that level yet. Um, yeah, and, you know, I'm going to um, the Cheltenham Science Festival this year as well. I'm going to do science stand-up, which... Um, it's going to be interesting so just you know slowly branching out um but it's it's nice i think doing the science communication i think the reason i like it so much is you know it's really cool in science when you discover something new when you get a result and for a brief moment you're the only person in the world who knows that thing and it's so cool because that's knowledge that didn't exist beforehand but then what's even cooler is then you can go to other people and say, hey, look at this thing. Yeah. We didn't know this until just now, but now we know it. And now we can we can share it with other people and we can understand more about ourselves and about the world we live in. Um, and science communication is, I think, critical for, for that because there's so few people who are scientists, but science plays such an important role. And so many of the people who are scientists aren't good at it. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, I don't know if that's controversial to say, but most scientists cannot communicate with a non-science audience mm-hmm. um, and they can get quite rude about it. And that's definitely not the way we should be moving that forward. Exactly. I mean, there's so many, you know, I've, when I was doing my um, degrees and things, it's it's so easy to get lost in you know the papers and the jargon and the way all that that sort of world works but as I said I just I just don't think there's a point in doing all this stuff if you're not going to share it and use it to you know to communicate with people I mean obviously the world is is such a fast-changing place there's so much there's so much going on we've done so much damage to the world I think the only way we can get across to people the importance of making changes in our lives is through science communication and it's by taking the research that's going on into climate change into species extinction all this stuff that is happening now that so many people are so close to and the blinkers on it's not happening you know I think it's a matter of basic understanding and Mm -hmm. if you you know I watched the what was it cop I'll edit this bit what's it called cop 20 yeah yeah 26 24 yes. was it 26 <laughs> can't remember the number I think it was 26 yes god I'll start again I mean I watched cop 26 now we've decided what number it was um <laughs> and yeah I understood quite a lot of it but you know I knew people that were that were fo- trying to follow along with it and so much of it just didn't make sense to so many people and I yeah. think and it, it just gets lost and yeah. there's no point doing it it's not going to make a change if it's just going to get lost so without some people like yourself to translate it and make it you know understandable and tangible and accessible then mm-hmm. what's the point I suppose <laughs> yeah I think um so one of my one of my YouTube series which I've been doing is uh just less than two minutes explaining a scientific term like the word you know theory or peer review or even research scientists use that word and we mean something very specific but to other people it means something completely different the definition of a theory in normal life is basically the opposite of what scientists mean so we can't blame people for saying things like 
oh, evolution is just a theory if we're not actually telling them what we mean by that. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, just explaining what these words mean can make a really big difference because, yeah, we can't expect people to just know what it is we're saying when we're speaking in jargon mm-hmm. all of the time. Yeah. And then they misunderstand us and we just get mad at them. And that's not, then they're not going to listen to us, even if we then try to explain later on. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's the same with like, I know listening to lectures and things if it's yeah. if it's if it's something you're not quite if it's something slightly out of your field of expertise then mm-hmm. if it's I've found it so many times that if it's something that I don't understand then I'm so much more likely to switch off if yeah. I don't understand it you know I try but I think that must be the same for so many people even watching news you know news reports about things if it's not something that directly aligns with you then you're going to yeah. switch off so it's about finding the way that to make things yeah. align with different people and different age groups different you know different parts of yes. society yeah. how to make people relate mm-hmm. yeah learning what you, who your audience is is the most important part I think uh, because yeah, a lot of scientists act like their audience is also people who are at least, you know, undergraduate degree holders in a science subject. And, you know, my, my older brother has a PhD in history. His wife is a is a PhD in biology. I'm getting my PhD in biology. My brother doesn't understand what his wife and I are talking about sometimes because it's not his area. Mm-hmm. And then he starts talking about 17th century books and I don't know what's going on. But you have to change your language to fit the person you're talking to and you have to be able to put yourself in their shoes and that is something that I think a lot of scientists don't do when they try to communicate their their work yeah I mean I suppose it's difficult you know if you're in this world and then suddenly you have to step out of it you know it can it can be challenging um yeah then I think that there is there is definitely room for people to bridge that gap you know mm. people like say you know people in my position who aren't scientists quote unquote yeah. who but who are you know in sort of immersed in that world who yes are quite happy to not do the research but share other people's research yeah. so I don't know if that's the lazy way out but you know <laughs> I think I think it's a really good way to get more people involved with science but I think the bigger issue is that there isn't enough training within the sciences mm-hmm. to teach scientists how do we talk to people you know we're all up in our ivory towers with our little labs doing our little research <laughs> and that we're publishing in our little journals with our little paywall so that no one could read it unless they're part of a an institution and it's mm-hmm. you know we're not there's there's programs you know like in Edinson Andrews where I am there is a public engagement team and you can take public engagement training but it's not a requirement you know and you basically have to go out and find it yourself and then figure out how you're going to do it mm-hmm. on your own and that's it should be encouraged way more by the institutions we're actually a part of because if if we manage to spread our research more that'll benefit everyone mm-hmm. but it's not as profitable so I guess we don't do it as much you know no that's what it all comes down to I suppose yeah yeah (laughs) um so moving on to more about going back to what we were talking about nature and stuff I mean I obviously I'd happily go and live barefoot in a forest somewhere you know because that's where I feel most at home it's where I feel most myself it's where I can switch off from the world and just enjoy myself do you can you relate to that at all I feel like a lot of us 
can in a way all of us nature nature geeks we all sort of have that you know if someone gave us an opportunity to like go and and live up a tree then (laughs) we'd give it a go (laughs) yeah yeah especially you know I've worked with so many other like ecologists and you know animal scientists and they're all so outdoorsy constantly camping and hiking (laughs) and wild water rafting or whatever it's called um I can't do a fair amount of those things because I have really bad ankle um so I miss out you know on all the all the hill walking and stuff a lot of the time because I can't walk for eight hours but at the same time you know what in undergrad I was saying I, I work with those blue tits and we do at the height of the season 15 hour days walking around the Scottish countryside and it was exhausting but it was also really rewarding because you know I saw all these animals I'd never seen before you know I got within five meters of a massive um red deer stag once that just was suddenly there as I turned the corner um and yeah I I would I would go and live in the woods in a heartbeat if it meant I could have more experiences like that because um you know living in a city I've lived in a lot of cities I've lived in some of the biggest cities in the world and it's just not for me um a lot of people think St Andrews is too small but I'm like 50 meters from the beach if I wanted to be in the mountains, I'd be there in an hour. Mm-hmm. Um, I can see all of the birds that migrate. They come through here. Uh, I can go snorkeling right off the coast. And it's just so nice because there's so much around us that we usually don't take the time to notice. Uh, you know, I walked into, into my backyard this morning. It's in two levels. So I've got a little downstairs uh, paved bits where I, you know, sit and read my book, whatever. And then bit that goes up the stairs and I don't go up there very often because it's pretty wild and I went up there this morning and it is entirely overgrown with flowers mm-hmm. and I know my neighbors probably hate it because they've got their little perfectly manicured yards yeah. and mine is just full of plants and full of insects and I'm gonna go in there you know this weekend with my camera and see what I can find because I don't spend enough time there but when I do there's always something new mm-hmm and it's that feeling, isn't it? That feeling of just like, oh, what's that? What's that? I don't yeah. think that feeling will ever get old. I've been seeing quite a lot of things recently across social media and across across Twitter. And in fact, there was something um, someone shared recently about um, obviously Springwatch that's on at the minute yeah. um, saying, oh, it's a bit childish, isn't it? Being so excited about, you know, a bird, blah, blah, blah. And I think, where did we where did we go so wrong that people think it's it's childish? And you know, what's the problem if it is childish? We're getting yeah. excited about nature that we're, you know, we're part of. Mm-hmm. What's the problem with that? Right. Yeah. I went on holiday with some friends last year and we were driving up to uh a town up in the up in the highlands and we got there. It was starting to get uh quite late starting to get a bit dark and we just went for a very brief walk in the woods and it was entirely filled with toadstools Mm -hmm. and none of us had ever seen you know the red ones with the white spots yeah none of us had ever seen them before and we just lost our minds (laughs) it was just four women screaming in the woods because there were so many toadstools and we were so excited and it's just this yeah you know what maybe it is childish this childish glee that you get when you see something exciting but there's nothing wrong with that no absolutely nothing wrong with that um I think, I think it, it makes you a more interesting person and it yeah. just means you spend way more time paying attention to things that aren't yourself 
I think, you know, I think there's nothing wrong with I think that's the whole problem is that people think there's something wrong with the childish wonder. Yeah. And I always say that, you know, I've said it a few times on the show that that if you can if you could somehow bottle the wonder and excitement that comes out of my six year old when he sees anything, then, you know, and if you could sell that, I think people would be a lot happier. And I just I always wonder where where it is what what stage in our lives is it where we come from that sort of wonder and oh my god that excitement to this I don't know it's probably part of the fast-paced world where we don't have time to stop and look we're always working on our phones I know I've started reflecting on it quite a lot recently and writing about it is that I realized that there was a big period of my time nearly 10 years of my probably more of my life where I completely disconnected from nature completely and I didn't I won't say I found it boring because it wasn't boring it just was not in my sort of headspace at all yeah and then as soon as I started to reconnect my whole mindset changed everything changed my perspective Mm -hmm. on everything changed um so I and I think there's so many people in that same position yeah I think definitely uh I mean one of the things that I always think about I think part of why I'm always so excited about nature is that it's like magic, mm-hmm. you know, and I, I love books about magic when I was a kid. I still read books about magic and now I'm 26, but I know it's not magic. I know the way plants grow and the ways animals move. It's, it's not magic. It's biology. But at the same time, there is something magical about it Yeah, because you don't have to understand all of it to be able to appreciate it. And at the same time, a plant that looks one way today can look completely different tomorrow. And that's just... If you just take the time to appreciate all of those things around you, it really does look like there is magic everywhere mm-hmm. because, you know, yeah, it's, it's just, it's, it's just great. I love it. <laughs> I'm going to use that snippet for my trailer of this episode. <laughs> that was perfect. Um, yeah, no, I completely agree. I mean, I've, I've, I've recently come over that hurdle of being like, oh, I can't tweet about nature. I can't post about nature. I can't talk about nature because I don't know anything about it. I don't know enough about all the bird species. I don't know enough about the bees. Now I'm just like, for God's sake, there's a bird out there. It's amazing. I'm going to share it. You know, it's getting over mm-hmm. that. You have to understand everything and know everything. Of course you don't. I still can't identify most of the birds that I see. I'm trying. I'm getting a lot better a lot better <laughs> but, but you know it's all part of a process and I think if you've got a passion for something then yeah. just go, go with it yeah it's just yeah you don't you don't have to understand it absolutely and you don't have to try to learn either no uh, you know I've since I was like 16 I've wanted to know the names of all the different types of clouds mm-hmm. it's been 10 years I still don't know any names of clouds <laughs> I didn't know clouds. But they're really names. cool. Yeah. <laughs> see? <laughs> but when I see cool clouds, I still go, you know, oh, amazing, cool. I yeah. love it. And I'm going to appreciate it. Mm-hmm. Um, in the same way, I don't, I know two constellations, and yet looking up at the night sky is one of the best things you can do sometimes. It is, even if you don't know 100% what's going on. I mean, I remember every single time someone's told me something and I've gone whoa that's that's life-changing I mean it was only quite recently I was I recently did an event um for those that don't know that was to do with astronomy and space and things and I don't know 
anything about astronomy in space but I've made quite a lot of good friends who are sort of astronomers who you know involved in this astronomical 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 societies and things and the things they've told me about what's up there mm-hmm. and stuff it's just completely blowing my mind every time I mean I can't remember most of it but you know yeah. like when when I hear it it just it just opened your mind and as as you said it does still feel like magic yes love yeah. that I absolutely love mm-hmm. that so to finish if, yes. we, if I can just ask you that one cliche question that I ask all of my all of my guests and that is obviously we talked about how the planet is changing with the with the you know the impact that we've had on it what can people be doing to sort of make a bit of a change make a bit of a difference not huge changes not like you know not hot you don't not we're not out to change the entire world on our own but just little things for us I think you know other than just taking the time to pay more attention to the things around you I think the one thing I would recommend is understanding and realizing that animals aren't dumber than us we're not smarter than them we're not better than them we just think we are because we're us and they're something that doesn't look like us and that's why we think apes are smart because they're like us and we like things like us at the same time archerfish can do mathematical calculations in milliseconds that pro athletes train their entire life to be able to do in the same amount of time. And an archerfish has a brain the size of a grain of rice. Mm-hmm. And a human brain is about the size of our two fists held together. So, you know, that is a massive difference. And yet these fish are so good at what they do. And we could never do the same thing they do. And that doesn't mean we're dumb either. It just means we're very, very different. And we're all bringing these different things to the table. And in the same way, you know, everything has its place. Mm-hmm. Um, all of the animals in the world have their place as well. So even things with tiny brains, even things with no brains, you know, things with very simple neural synapses, they're still important. And just because they don't look like us doesn't mean we should discard them as something, you know, that we don't need. Mm -hmm. We all love the charismatic mammals. and It's a cliche, but, you know, furry, cuddly. Yeah. Yeah. And yet all the things with scales and slime and weird skin textures or whatever it is, they're just as cool. Mm-hmm. And it's just, we can't pet them. <laughs> you know, that's that's the difference. Yeah. So I'd say, yeah, just when you see an animal, especially if you think, you know, oh, this is a pest of some kind, just for a moment, just think, what actually is this animal? What is its function? Mm-hmm. And you don't have to be right. Again, you can think, oh, its function might be this. And if it turns out you're wrong, who cares? Because you took a moment to just think about that creature. Yeah, absolutely. Before you, I would never, but, you know, before you squash a spider or yeah. bat away a wasp, remember why it's mm-hmm. there and what its bigger purpose is in the whole balance yeah. of the ecosystem. I mean, I'm still terrified from wasps, but I just go in the other direction. <laughs> I think that's fair, you know, and if you're if you're scared of spiders, spiders keep uh, pests in your home down. Mm-hmm. So put leave them in a corner somewhere and yeah. just don't go near that corner. Yeah. If there's a wasp in your house, open the windows. Mm-hmm. There's solutions to these problems that don't involve us beating down other animals who are just trying to live their lives. I think it's- we're in their 
space a lot more often than they are in ours so absolutely i think it's time as humans we start to reverse our power that we have start to turn it flip it around and stop sort of trying to dominate everything and start trying to you know live alongside everything so yeah i would agree on that note before we go on for hours i would like to say thank you so much for joining me i'm so glad we got this finally and have a chat me too and yeah brilliant thank you very much (laughs) thanks for having me charlie it was great i'll stop recording hang on where's the button It was brilliant to be able to chat to Dagmar. We've obviously been connected for a long time um, and I just found it so amazing to sort of learn a bit more about Dagmar's research. Uh, Dagmar is such an incredible science communicator and makes quite a challenging subject really accessible and really interesting and I found myself sort of going wow every moment and just wanting to learn more. I really enjoyed being able to actually have a deep dive into the sort of the whys of science communication. Why do we do it? Why is it important? Obviously, I would call myself a science communicator. I've explored sort of the academic um, side of research and have come away from that now. And that's why I'm sort of doing my writing. I'm doing my podcasting. I'm bringing, I feel like, I don't know, I feel like I'm bringing other people's research to you in a in an accessible, fun way and just sharing people's passion is just such a good way of of, of sort of communicating a message. I think communication is something that we take for granted. I think we all think we know how to do it, but really when we when we sort of, you know, dig deeper, uh, do we actually know how to do it? I know for one, me, I'm quite a bad communicator with my family. Um, I'm quite open, you know, superficially I'm quite open, quite happy to share things about things. I'm quite happy to share sort of uh, information about my neurodivergence. I'm quite happy to share little little sort of snippets about what I'm doing in my life. But when it actually comes to communicating feelings and things that like really important things, it doesn't quite. I don't. I'm. I don't know. It's not that I don't know how to do it. It just doesn't quite happen. So I think if I can give you any message to take away, it's just think about what we actually mean when we say communication. I'm going to end with a quote from, it's a little bit unusual, I'm going to end with a quote from the book A Little Princess by Frances Hodgson Burnett. How it is that animals understand things I do not know, but it is certain that they do understand. Perhaps there is a language which is not made of words and everything in the world understands it. Perhaps there is a soul hidden in everything and it can always speak without even making a sound to another soul. Join me next time for more interesting conversations and another brilliant guest. Thank you for listening. I'm Charlie and this has been Mountain Conversations.